Well, the prophet Jeremiah once cried out, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And later, the psalmist Asaph would confess, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And today, as we consider the prosperity of the proud and the power of the wicked, we have similar questions and similar complaints. Why has God allowed the wicked and the proud, these kinds of leaders, to rise to power? Why has God allowed his people and his church to suffer under leaders like these? And as much as we could wish for specific answers to these kinds of questions, the Bible doesn't offer us the kind of answers we want. Instead, it offers broad answers. But we know that whatever God allows, including the rise of proud and wicked leaders and the persecution of his people, he allows that for our good and for his glory. However, the scriptures don't tell us why specific people have risen to power or why the church in certain parts of the world suffer more than others. Instead, the scriptures offer us a vision of faithfulness and hope in precisely these kinds of situations. And it's this vision of faithfulness that Daniel presents us with in chapter 4 as we continue our series, Living in Exile. Over the last several weeks, we've been considering how we as the people of God are to live in a world that's not our home, to live in a nation that's not our home, and to live with our allegiance utmost to Christ and his kingdom. And we've been considering in particular how we as the people of God are to face the rapid marginalization and the loss of influence in our culture as we consider the experience of the exiles in Judah who overnight went from living in their own land with their own people, with their own customs, to all of a sudden figuring out what it looks like to be faithful to God in a new land with new laws, a new land with new gods, and a new land with new customs, morals, and religious convictions. And so far we've seen that we are to prioritize faithfulness over influence. We're to depend upon God's wisdom rather than the wisdom of man, and we're to fear God rather than fear man. And today we want to consider how we ought to live when the proud prosper and the wicked reign. And as we look at Daniel chapter 4, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that we must be humbly confident because God humbles the proud. We must be humbly confident because God opposes the proud. And we'll see that by answering three questions. First, why does God humble the proud? Because only he... Is the Most High God who rules forever, and only He deserves our worship. Second, how can we be humbly confident? By listening to the Lord's warning to repent. And what would happen when God humbles the proud? We see two things. The humiliated are comforted, and the humbled rejoice in God's grace. But before we dive into God's Word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. You have not just spoken through prophets long ago. You don't just speak with centuries going by without hearing your voice, but that you have given us your word where day by day, week by week, we can hear from you. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us to count this precious gift, a true gift from you, and that you, by your spirit, would open our hearts to receive what you're saying to us this morning. So please speak the word that we need to hear. Give us hearts that would be willing to receive that word and faith. Lord, I especially ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately. 
so that we would leave this place treasuring Jesus, humbly confident, not in ourselves, but in what you have done for us in Christ. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it'd probably be helpful to follow along in one of our community Bibles under your chair, the chair next to you. If you're not familiar with the scripture, you can find Daniel chapter 4 on page uh, 740 of our community Bibles. And you'll find uh, Daniel chapter 4 by looking for the big, bold number 4. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We would be delighted for you to continue to engage God's Word day to day. Uh, and week to week on your own. Uh, But once you've found it, take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word. Ask that God would speak the word you need to hear this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me. At verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Why does God humble the proud? Because as the Most High God who rules forever, only He is worthy of worship. As the Most High God who rules forever, only He is worthy of our worship. Our passage opens with a bit of a surprise for us. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king who has been given to violent rages, who demanded all the peoples of the earth worship him, now has a different declaration to all people, to all languages, and all the earth. He wants to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God, the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, and our God has done for him. He rejoices in the greatness of these signs and the power of his wonders. But more broadly, he recounts how this God, his kingdom is everlasting. Only his kingdom reigns forever. Only his dominion endures from generation to generation And so some 20 years after Daniel 2, the king of Babylon has become arguably the greatest king the world has ever known. Notice he's writing to, again, all peoples, all nations, all languages, to all who dwell in the earth. One commentator would describe the height of Nebuchadnezzar's power this way. The king has finished his battles to expand his kingdom. He's plundered Egypt, Tyre, Israel, and other nations and brought all their treasures to Babylon. And he's used these treasures to beautify existing temples and to build new ones. For his wife, he builds the famous hanging gardens, which would become one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's peace in his kingdom. That king has finally arrived. And yet this king, one who is exalted over all the earth, has finally recognized that his kingdom, as well as any other kingdom of men, will come and go. But God's kingdom alone will last forever. Now, we won't see until much later how all of, these, all of this connects to pride until we see the rest of our passage. But to summarize now, the reason Nebuchadnezzar has come to this conclusion about the greatness of our God and his kingdom is precisely because God humbles the proud and humbles Nebuchadnezzar in particular. And this is one, and I think perhaps even the primary reason 
God opposes the proud. Because only he is the most high God who rules forever. And only he deserves worship. Only his kingdom will last forever. And only he deserves all our allegiance. And so this gloriously great and mighty God will ensure that only he receives all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And he'll do that by any means possible, including removing anyone and anything that competes for his glory. And this ought to produce then in us a humble confidence. It's ought to produce humility because God is God and we are not. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. He is over us, above us, stronger than us, wiser than us, and reigns over us and the world around us. He alone has the power to save, which means if we're going to accomplish anything of significance in our life and in our ministry, it will only happen according to his will and his power and for the sake of his glory, which also means when it comes to ministry, we trust God for the results and we're simply faithful because God is God and we are not. In humility, we don't claim more for ourselves than we can. And yet at the very same time, this ought to produce then a great confidence in us. Because our God is the one who's in control. No matter what events are swirling around us, God is in control. No matter how weak and vulnerable we might feel, God is powerful and strong. Or as the psalmist would put it, though my heart and flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so we can have confidence then because of the greatness of our God. Now, humble confidence can sound like an oxymoron. How can we be humble and confident at the very same time? And one of the reasons why this sounds like an oxymoron to us is because we have a hard time distinguishing between confidence on the one hand and pride and arrogance on the other. But there's a difference between pride and confidence. Pride is not the opposite of confidence, But rather, pride is confidence in the wrong things. The reality is some people who have the strongest convictions are also some of the most humble people because their conviction is not in themselves, but in God. So let's take a moment to consider what pride really is. Martin Luther, the great reformer, describes pride or vainglory in this way. It's the nature of vainglory to compare itself with those who are unlike itself. And from that comparison to then have contempt for the one who is inferior. For vainglory does not rejoice so much in the fact that it has or is something as in the fact that others are nothing or have nothing. In other words, Martin Luther and many others would argue that the essence of pride is comparative. Pride does not simply recognize that I'm good, I'm smart, I'm strong, I'm fast, or I'm competent. Rather, pride says, I'm smarter than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm more competent than you. Pride is looking to others to make itself feel better. This is why so many have considered arrogance and insecurity two sides of the same coin. Because both are focused on themselves in comparison to others. The arrogant look to those that they're better than as their point of comparison. And the insecure look to those that are better than them as their point of comparison. But both are consumed with the self. The humble person, though, in contrast, rightly recognizes who they are in light of who God is and what he has done for them in Christ. And so as a result, they no longer have to perform to be validated. They no longer have to perform to be accepted. They no longer have to perform to be loved. Instead, they recognize that the only person whose opinion counts looks at me and finds me more valuable than all the jewels in the earth. 
The truly humble recognize that just as God has said to Jesus, he says to those who are in Christ, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And once again, it's this that produces a humble confidence in us. Because simultaneously, we recognize that we are not God and could never be God. What could humble you more than to compare yourself to the God of the universe who is infinitely holy, perfect, wise, strong, and so on? And yet, at the very same time, it's that God who is infinitely great, who looks on us and loves us, who rules forever and cares for us. What could make us more confident than that? And it's this God who rules forever and loves us in Christ that wants our complete worship, our total devotion, and all of our heart. That's one reason why this God opposes the proud, because only he is the Most High God who rules forever. And as such, only he deserves our worship. And so the question then is, how did Nebuchadnezzar, this king who demanded all the peoples of the earth worship him, come to this place where he recognizes that this God is the Most High, that his kingdom alone endures forever? The answer is he learned it through the school of hard knocks as God humbled him. Which brings us then to our second question. How can we become humbly confident? By listening to God's warning to repent. By listening to God's warning to repent. We see that in verses 4 through 27, which for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize. Beginning in verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar begins to recount how he learned the lessons of verses 1 through 3. And once again, it begins with a dream that alarmed him. And once again, he did what any king in his place would have done. He gathers all the wise men in the land in order to give his dream an interpretation. But once again, all the wise men fail until he summons Daniel into his presence. And in Daniel's presence, we finally learn what's alarmed the king so much. The king begins to recount his dream to Daniel. He dreamed of a great and strong tree that was placed in the middle of the earth. His branches extended all the way to the heavens, and its limbs extended all the way to the edges of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. It provided food for all the creatures of the earth, shade and protection for all the animals and beasts. And so far, as we hear that kind of dream, there's not much to be alarmed by. That sounds kind of exciting. But then his dream takes a turn for the worse. He recounts how a watcher from heaven, a holy one, comes down and proclaims that this great tree should be chopped down And a band of iron and bronze should be placed upon the stump. And then the dream shifts imagery. Apparently the tree represents a person. For now the watcher says of the person, this tree, that this tree represents, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. And most importantly, this watcher says the reason that all this would happen is to make known that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And having recounted the dream, Nebuchadnezzar then invites Daniel to make known the interpretation of this dream because, again, all his wise men have failed. Now, before we go on to consider the interpretation, it's worth observing, as Tim Keller points out in Counterfeit Gods, if this description of God as the one who rules and gives his kingdom to whom he wills is accurate, That means that anyone who is successful is simply a recipient of God's grace. Even the people at the top of the world's hierarchy and power of wealth and influence 
are really actually the lowliest. They too are no better than anyone else. They've simply received grace. And this too then should produce a great humility in us, even the most successful among us, because we recognize that whatever gifts, whatever influence, whatever success we have is not ultimately a result of our own initiative, but of God's grace. Further, that ought to encourage us to be careful with our authority, with whatever power and influence the Lord gives us, because we've been entrusted with that authority by God for his purposes, not our own. But in response to this dream, we learn in verse 19 that Daniel is dismayed and alarmed himself. He doesn't particularly want to tell the king the interpretation of this dream. And so King Nebuchadnezzar notices this and pleads with him, please tell me what it means. Don't be alarmed. And so Daniel begins to recount the interpretation of the dream first by wishing that this interpretation would not be for the king, but for those who hate the king, for those who are enemies of the king. And then Daniel goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar that the strong and beautiful tree, the one that provides abundance to all the creatures of the earth, actually represents him. The king has grown strong and great. His kingdom has reached the ends of the known world. And yet... Because Nebuchadnezzar had not acknowledged that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will, he would be driven from men. His mind would become like an animal. He would think like an animal, act like an animal, eat like an animal, sleep like an animal, and growing hair like eagle's feathers and nails like talons until seven periods of time has passed. Now, seven is the Hebrew number of completeness, and so seven simply means until he learns the lesson, until this has completed its purpose, that he recognizes that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And at that time, he says in verse 26, the kingdom would be restored. It's being preserved for him. And so given this warning, Daniel boldly now offers King Nebuchadnezzar some counsel. Daniel says to the king in verse 27, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. He hopes that by repenting, by turning from his sin, Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity would be lengthened. Now, this is a bit of speculation, but I have to wonder if the wise men actually knew the interpretation of this dream. It wasn't that hard to see where Daniel got what he got from, but perhaps. The wise men knew the king's volatility. They knew how often he had put people to death. And they feared, what will the king do if he learns this interpretation? But regardless of why the wise men did not speak truth, Daniel spoke this hard truth to a man who by all accounts is flourishing. He's at the heights of his power. And knowing the danger he faced if he was honest. From this, Pastor David Helm then describes a reality for ministry. Fear is often the greatest enemy of faithful witness, for it makes us silent. In order to speak truth, Daniel would have to face this fear. And all these things, then Daniel provides us with a clear model to emulate in bearing faithful witness to God concerning the kingdom of his son. We must be willing to share the bad news with people, that they are out of sorts with God, even as our own hearts breaks for them while we tell them such. We must be willing to tell others that God is not pleased with our pride. God is not pleased with a human tendency to push him aside and to live independently and autonomously. God is not happy 
our desire to think we are the measure of all things. And we must be willing to say why it is that God works against us so that we might one day know that he rules all the kingdoms of the earth. And then finally, we must be ready to offer a call to repentance and to give them hope in the gospel. This is our call as those who trust in Christ. Yet far more important than Daniel's example, I want us to know the, can notice the connection between Nebuchadnezzar's problem on the one hand and Daniel's solution. Nebuchadnezzar's problem is essentially pride. Yet notice when Daniel says repent, he does not say repent of pride. He says, turn from your sin by practicing righteousness and showing mercy. And Daniel's solution to pride is repentance specifically of practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. And we'll, we'll come back to a second how those two things are connected. One thing I just want us to notice first is that here it's the king, the one who is in charge of governing this nation, who is charged with both practicing righteousness and showing mercy. And it's a good and right thing for us to hope that our governing authorities might be marked both by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. And yet, sadly, it often feels like in our two-party political system, we have to choose between the two, don't we? Practice righteousness. It sounds a lot like the platform for conservatives, who, among other things, promote traditional family values and morality. Showing mercy to the oppressed, on the other hand, sounds a lot like progressive platforms who, among other things, want to champion charity and compassion for the poor and the marginalized. Now, we all may personally question whether the policies of conservatives or progressives accomplish what they say they accomplish. But what I want us to simply notice here is that we as Christians should feel a holy sense of discontentment about being forced to choose between the two. We are called to care for both practicing righteousness on the one hand and showing mercy on the other. And regardless of which political party we might choose to support, we as Christians must be committed to both. Consider how this might play out then in just one policy. You might argue that we ought to raise the minimum wage so that single moms can earn enough of a living to cover the costs of daycare, other expenses, and still have time to spend with their children. On the other hand, you might argue we actually need to lower the minimum wage so that more single moms will be able to be employed than you would with a higher minimum wage. And both of those are legitimate options for Christians to consider because both are operating out of a care and compassion for the single mothers and children made in God's image. However, one unacceptable option, even though it might line up closely with that more conservative policy, is to say, I think it's the single mother's fault that they're in this place and we don't need to do anything to help them. That is not acceptable for the Christian. And practically, I'm hoping that drawing our attention to this tension then will help us to have empathy and understanding for someone who might disagree with us on the best way to balance both practicing righteousness and showing mercy. After all, the scriptures don't say anywhere. If you're forced to choose between the two, pick practicing righteousness. If you're forced to choose between the two, pick showing mercy. And so we might forgive someone for considering, actually, I'm going to prioritize this one, or I'm going to prioritize this one, or I'm not going to settle for prioritizing either. I'm going to waste my vote by voting third candidate, or abstaining, or something else. We can understand then, driving these values out of Scripture, that we ought to care for both. This is why Jesus would say, you ought not to have neglected these 
while <laughs> neglecting the weightier matters of the law. You ought to have done both, done these while also pursuing the weightier matters of the law. And so though we'll inevitably disagree on which political parties and platforms best practice righteousness and show mercy, again, we as Christians must value both. But what then is the connection between Nebuchadnezzar's pride on the one hand and practicing righteousness and showing mercy on the other? Why is that the call for repentance? And the connection is that when we are proud, when we are self-righteous, we look down upon others and we disregard God's word because we're the center of the universe. And so when we look down on others, we treat them harshly and with contempt. So consider the difference between the harshness and cruelty of King Nebuchadnezzar with the gentleness of Daniel's warning. Nebuchadnezzar wields the power to demand other people worship him. Nebuchadnezzar demands people obey him or die. Daniel, on the other hand, in humility, while speaking the truth, wishes that this interpretation, wishes that this warning would not be for Nebuchadnezzar. He fights in order to lengthen the prosperity of King Nebuchadnezzar. And one sign of pride in our life is how we look at and treat others. Do we think that we're better than other people? Are we constantly comparing our marriage, our holiness, our faithfulness, our parenting, our competency, or something else to other people? Do we automatically assume that if someone's poor, it's because they deserve to be poor? Do we have a measure of contempt or disdain for someone who doesn't measure up to us? Are we harsh with others? When they fail or make a mistake, all of these are signs that we are preoccupied with ourselves, and we've come to look down upon other people. And so the solution to our pride is, as Daniel urges Nebuchadnezzar, to repent. We stop looking at ourselves. We stop looking at other people. And instead, we turn our eyes to God. And when our hearts are consumed with His glory and His grace, the natural result will be practicing righteousness and showing mercy to others because we will value ourselves less and we will love God and love others more. After all, this is what Jesus has done for us. Our hearts, the temptation of our hearts is to say, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High for my own sake. But Jesus said, I will descend. I will go low for your sake. He became human when he went to the cross to die for our sin. And now that Christ has died in our place for our sin and rose from the dead in victory, we can repent without the fear of judgment. And so instead of being humbled, we will receive grace. And all we have to do is recognize our desperate need, turn from our sin, and cling to our Savior and all that Jesus has accomplished to us. And in this way, the gospel also teaches us to pursue a humble confidence. The gospel leads us to humility because it says we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Listen, you are worse than you think you are. As bad as you might think you are, the Bible would say you are worse. And there is no room for moral superiority at the foot of the cross. And yet, the good news is this, and this is what produces confidence. It says, in Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope the king of the universe savior of the world has looked upon you and found you precious loved you enough to die for you rescue you redeem you and cover you with his blood which means we have nothing to fear and nothing to prove and when we take hold of this 
it then also produces graciousness in us towards others. In the gospel, we recognize we don't deserve Christ's grace. We didn't do anything to deserve it. And so we learn from our experience of his grace to us to be kind, loving, and gracious to other people, whether they deserve it or not, because we know we don't deserve it. And so if you're a Christian, the invitation to us is all the same. Repent of your pride. Come to Jesus. Stop comparing yourself to others. And instead, revel in the grace he has extended to us and begin to extend that grace to others. And if you are not a Christian, the invitation to you is the same. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-centeredness. Turn from trying to displace God from your life and live as you please. And instead, trust in Christ. Look to Christ. Look to what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. He died to pay the penalty of your sin. And he rose from the dead in victory so that he would defeat the power of sin so that you could be free and you could be loved. And so with even more assurance than Daniel can offer Nebuchadnezzar, I can say that because Jesus died for you, if you will repent, it will stay God's judgment. You will have nothing to fear. And so if this is something you'd like to consider, I or one of our members would be delighted to talk with you more after the service about how you can become both deeply humble and totally confident in the love of God in Christ. You'll be free to recognize the depth of your flaws, failures, and sin. And yet, simultaneously, you'll know that you are more loved and accepted by God, the only one who knows you fully and completely. So how do we become humbly confident? By listening to God's warning to repent. We look away from ourselves and look to Christ. Because God will humble the proud. Which then brings us to one final question. What happens when God humbles the proud? Look with me, beginning in verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So what happens when God humbles the proud? The humiliated are comforted. The humiliated are comforted. So after being warned to repent in verse 27, we learn in verse 28 through 33 that although God's judgment wasn't enacted immediately, Nebuchadnezzar did not repent. But all that he was warned of eventually came upon him. And if you're not a Christian, I just want you to notice here the kindness and patience of God. Right now, God is being kind and patient and merciful towards you, delaying his judgment so that you might come to repentance and faith in Christ. But just as judgment eventually fell on Nebuchadnezzar, eventually judgment will come upon you. We don't know when you'll die. 
And the scriptures say after death comes judgment. We don't know when Christ will return, but when he returns, he will judge the world with justice and righteousness. And so I would plead with you this morning, please take advantage of the time that God has given you. Take advantage of the patience and kindness of God and take seriously his call. It is a serious call to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. I want you to take the time to consider that important matter seriously. But it's also urgent because you don't know how much time you have left. So consider that today. Take the steps you need to take today in order to consider whether or not you will trust Christ. If you don't humble yourself now under the mighty hand of God, he will humble you later when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And it's this judgment that falls on Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his power. Again, one pastor invites us to imagine the scene as it unfolds in verse 29. Twelve months later, he's walking on the roof of his palace, which would have been flat, so that the king could relax and walk there in the cool of the breeze. From the roof, he could look down on the processional avenue that had been paved with limestone and decorated with lions. He could also see the famous hanging gardens that he had placed there for his wife. A little farther down, he could see the temple he had built for his God. He could see dozens of others that he had reinvigorated. He could see the ziggurat tower consisting of seven levels, the top being 300 feet high, a 30-story tower. He could see many of the temples he had built and beautified. And then there was the double inner wall with its large defensive towers. And beyond the inner wall, he could see the large double outer wall that he had built and some eight massive gates that prevented access or granted access to the city. Babylon was one of the preeminent cities of history. And during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, it was the most magnificent and probably the largest city on the earth. And in all its grandeur, who does Nebuchadnezzar credit with this great work? Himself. Look again at verse 30. Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Rather than heeding the warning, Nebuchadnezzar has taken credit for his kingdom. He's given credit to himself, his power, and his majesty. He fails to recognize that it is God who rules the kingdom of men and who has given it to whom he will. And so literally, as he is praising his own glory, splendor, and might, the judgment he was warned of falls upon him as the words are in his mouth. The Lord says, He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. I want you to consider how this news would have struck the Jews in exile, or the first readers or hearers of the book of Daniel. One pastor puts it this way, What an encouragement this message must have been for Israelites suffering in exile in Babylon. The Babylonian kings may have seemed great, but Israel's God is greater. The Babylonian kings might seem mighty, but their God is almighty. He can take down the mightiest human king simply by confusing his mind. Israel's God is King of kings and Lord of lords. And though they may not understand why they're still in exile, why they're still suffering, the message is their God is still sovereign. Their God is in control over the human kings and gives them hope for deliverance. Surely this God could free them and bring them to their promised land once again. 
the Jews had been utterly humiliated. They were a people without a king and without a kingdom. And yet, in seeing their God humble the proud, they would be comforted knowing that their God was still in control. And if that was true for ancient Israel, how much more true is it for us? As one Old Testament commentator points out, the President of the United States has been called the most powerful individual alive. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he is a temporary and elected official with restricted powers. On a human level, Nebuchadnezzar had none of these restrictions. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the most powerful political entity in the world. His power exceeded the power of any individual we would find in the world today. There were no checks and balances on him. And yet, God humbled even that king. Further, we know even more than the exiles than Judah knew. We know that the greatest enemy of God's people, sin and Satan, has already been defeated. Death has been humbled when Jesus rose from the dead in victory. And now, Jesus is reigning and ruling at the right hand of Father. He is totally in control. Everything is going His way. And God has promised that Jesus will come again to bring all His enemies into submission to Him as a footstool. And Jesus will set all things right. What wonderful comfort that is to us. When we feel humiliated, when we feel marginalized, when we feel we're suffering, God is in control. Perhaps one of the cliques at school is making your life miserable. Perhaps your boss is a megalomaniac and you are living under his thumb. Perhaps the wrong politician will get elected this fall and you'll grow anxious about what that means for your life in the Christian faith. And the good news for you and for me is the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whomever he wills. So for whatever reason, God has given that click, that boss, that politician power and influence now. And yet, just as Nebuchadnezzar was stripped of his power, a day is coming when the proud will be humbled and when the humiliated will be exalted, when Jesus will set all things right. And so if God has humbled Nebuchadnezzar, if he's humbled death itself, God can and will one day humble all the proud. Every human and every authority is still under God's sovereign rule and reign. And so the key for us is to look up and look ahead. In Christ, our future is incredibly bright. And so in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our humiliation, we can, in faith, rejoice. We can take hope and comfort from God's promise to correct every wrong and to make right every injustice when Jesus finally returns. When God humbles the proud, the humiliated are comforted. And not only are the humiliated comforted, but the humbled rejoice in God's grace. Look with me at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, And I was established in my kingdom, and 
still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the King of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Here we see the humbled rejoice in God's grace. As the dream had promised, God's judgment was meant to lead Nebuchadnezzar to recognize that God was God and he was not. That God was the Most High who rules forever. To lead him to the place where he recognized the power and glory of the Most High God. And eventually that's what happens. After the time is complete, Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to the heaven and his reason restores and he blesses the Most High God. He recognizes that God's dominion lasts forever. He recognizes that all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing compared to God and his glory. And he recognizes that only God does as he will and nothing can stay his will. And further, in addition to his mind being restored, his counselors sought him out and restore his kingdom. And then even more, still more greatness was added to me. And this is the deep pattern of grace, which we see supremely in Jesus. Not only do we receive forgiveness, not only do we get restored back to neutral, but much more, we receive more than we once had. And for the Christian, this more that we receive is God's own pleasure. We are credited with the righteousness of Christ. We're not seen just as morally neutral, but as perfect, holy, blameless, without blemish or splot. When God sees us, he no longer sees our sin or our failure. Those have been cast as far as the east is from the west. Instead, when he sees us, he sees Jesus. We have become his beloved children in whom he is well pleased. And all this happened because Jesus was humiliated in our place. Philippians 2 describes Jesus as humbling himself, not just by surrendering his divine rights, not just by becoming a human, not just by becoming a servant, not just by becoming obedient, but by becoming obedient even to the point of death. And death on the cross, the most shameful of deaths. The author of Hebrews would describe as Jesus the one enduring the cross, despising the shame. This is what Jesus experienced on your behalf, so that if you will humble yourself, you will not be shamed. You will not be humiliated, but instead you will be honored and rejoice in his grace. And yet just as Nebuchadnezzar had to go through a humiliation in his life in order to humbly rejoice in God's grace, it may be that we'll need to go through something similar. A transformation of this sort is rarely easily accomplished. Our pride is simply too stubborn for that. And C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Don Treader presents us with a picture of someone who goes through just that. Eustace was a boy ruled by pride. He was then turned into a dragon, literal dragon. And no matter what, he could not return to being a boy again. Until Aslan, the lion figure who represents Christ in the book, tells Eustace this, you'll have to let me undress you. About which Eustace will later say, I was afraid of his cloth. I can tell you, but I can tell you I was pretty nearly desperate so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the dragon scales off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure 
of feeling the stuff peel off. Dear brothers and sisters, though it may be painful, the stripping of our pride, to bring us to a place where we can humbly recognize the greatness and glory of our God, it's worth it. It leads to great joy. It leads to freedom and pleasure and looking beyond ourselves to Christ, which is exactly what it does for Nebuchadnezzar. Our passage concludes in verse 37 with this pronouncement. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Just notice here, despite what he's been through, he doesn't complain. He doesn't say, why did God do this to me? Rather, he acknowledges that God was just and right in all that he's done. And this is what will be true on the final day when Christ comes to judge the world. We will see and celebrate every single one of his judgments as right and just and true. And yet the good news here is not only that such humbling from God leads us to rejoicing, but as Brian Chapel points out, there are none so evil or so destitute that the grace of God cannot reach them. If God can reach Nebuchadnezzar, he can reach you. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs would often remind his congregation, remember there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more grace in Christ than pride in us. And so not only is God able to humble the proud, but as James would tell us, God gives grace to the humble. And so if God can humble a man like Nebuchadnezzar and bring him to a place of rejoicing in God's grace, God's grace is sufficient for you and it's sufficient for me. All we need to do is admit our sin, admit our need, admit our powerlessness and cast ourselves on his mercy And in doing so, we will finally be secure in his love. We will finally be free from the insecurity. It will be gone. We'll be free from the lust of recognition from others. It will be cut out at the root. And we will finally, finally be able to rejoice in his grace. So as we live in exile, in a world that's not our home, in a nation that we don't belong to, in communities where our faith is marginalized and where the church seems to be losing its influence, We must be humbly confident because God humbles the proud. Why? Because as the Most High God who rules forever, only He deserves all glory and honor and praise. And how do we become humbly confident? By listening to His warning to repent of our self-centeredness and to look upon Christ. And what happens when God humbles the proud? The humiliated are comforted. And the humbled rejoice in his grace. So dear brothers and sisters, let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that we might receive the incredible grace that leads to humble confidence no matter what we face. A humble confidence that provides us with security and joy and the love of God for us in Christ. So as we conclude our time together in his word, let's take a moment to consider what God has been saying to us through his word. And perhaps the questions up on the screen will help us to reflect on that. How does God's rule over all earthly kingdoms humble you and give you confidence? In what ways has comparing yourself to others led you to think too highly of yourself or to look down upon others? 
How does it comfort you to know that God is sovereign over and humbles even the most powerful human authorities? And finally, how does Jesus' humiliation for you enable you to humbly admit your need and rejoice in his grace? Let's take a moment to consider what God has been saying to us through his word. Most high God, ruler of all the kingdoms of men, the king whose kingdom alone endures forever from generation to generation, we recognize that only you are worthy of our worship, that only you deserve our allegiance, that only you deserve all of our hope and all of our confidence. And so we ask that you would help us to see ourselves in light of who you are. That you would humble us. We would not be afraid to see the depths of our sin, flaw, and failure because we know how secure we are in your grace. And that would make your grace all the sweeter. That would make your kindness all the more precious. And that would reveal Jesus to be all the more glorious. And so, Lord, though our heart and flesh may fail, we ask that right now you would help us to express faith in you, confidence in you, because you are the strength of our heart and you are the hope of our soul. So help us look to Christ. Help us rest in Christ. Help us trust his grace. In his name we pray. Amen.